I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I think that before I had the opportunity to realise those things for myself, to realise how powerful sort of joyful resistance is, being somebody who was mixed race or who was living in a larger body, who came from a big family, who didn't come from wealth at all, sort of forced me to, to figure that out eventually. There was no escaping it. And I think it positioned me in a place where it was just naturally the conclusion I was going to come to. Sunny Adcock is an Australian journalist, writer, blogger and podcast host with over 10 years of experience writing about literature, pop culture, lifestyle, race and gender. She specialises in delivering passionate and nuanced conversations that empower and engage diverse audiences, both online and in person. Her work has been featured on Channel 10, The Daily Oz, Mamma Mia and more. Today we discuss the complexities of racial conversations, media framing, societal pressures on gender and body, plus all the fun challenges that come with being a young person in the media industry. We also touch on Sunny's love for literature, film, pop culture, and of course, Harry Styles. This is a very powerful conversation. Sunny was so generous to share her first-hand experience and knowledge in the racial theory space. I hope you find the episode as informative as I did. Be sure to leave a review and let's get into the chat. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. Sunny, welcome to Life Chats. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. We just uh, spoke for like an hour off <laughs> camera before we decided Could we should have actually for an hour more. I know before we decided, let's actually do this. Um, Sunny and I went to uni together. She's doing amazing things in the media space, and I'm just keen today to hear more about your professional life, your personal life, and the sort of work that you love producing. Tell me about what you wanted to be when you were younger. What you wanted to be when you grew up. <laughs> Great question to start with. My goodness. I'm laughing because when I was younger, I was very clear that I wanted to be three specific things. I Mm -hmm. wanted to be um, a singer, a hairdresser, and a dancer. Love it. Hairspray, the musical. (laughs) (laughs) So I I really was like, I kind of wanted to do everything. Um, Singing was like at the time, I was like, I want to be a pop star, Mm. which I think every girl or person does. But I was really like, I thought that was my main skill at the time. Um, Then as I grew up, I think I was always really interested in sort of people in the public eye. And I always followed that closely. And I think that definitely informed my desire to want to be a performer and you know I grew up in a house full full of many siblings I'm one of eight wow and so you know everybody has personality everybody has big energy so performing came very naturally um but then I think the more I started to consume those things I realized that I sort of had a bunch of opinions and things that I wanted to say about people's performances, about people's books, people's films. And I actually, funnily enough, 
when I was younger was a horrible reader in school. It took me so long to like properly learn how to read. I was like that kid in the primary school class who like had to be taken away (laughs) to go with the one-on-one sessions. And once I started learning how to read, I just loved it. And I think it really helped my obsessive and like energetic personality, just being transported and just sort of um, rapidly consuming something. And then once I started reading more and, you know, then of course in that sort of teenage years, those often, oftentimes those books turned into film adaptations and whatnot. Um, I just realized that I had so much to say. And through that, I learned that I could write. And that that was sort of my door in to everything else that I didn't yet have direct proximity to. I don't yet currently have proximity to. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to be a hairdresser. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? <laughs> it's a good option. <laughs> it's a good option. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be any good at it. Singing, I think, I think everybody still wants to be a pop star. Mm-hmm. If it happened, phenomenal. But I think I'm probably a far better writer than I am a singer. So for now, it's a writer in the pop culture and sort of lifestyle space. And was that encouraged in your family? Like you wanting to share your opinions and write and share work and perform in the household? Definitely. (laughs) Tell me about your family. So my family is a beautiful blended family. Mm -hmm. Um, So there, there are eight of us. I grew up only sort of living with seven of my siblings at a time. So that in itself is a house that is going to be full to the brim. And, you know, my dad, he's an actor, so he's very theatrical. My mom is inherently creative. She sort of dabbles in in every in everything really she Mm -hmm. was once a beauty editor um you know she would make beautiful cards she was a makeup artist she was you know a business starter so many different things and so I think because they always well they never lived sort of a traditional nine to five at least during my lifetime we always did things differently to begin with um I'm also mixed race my mom is African-American my dad's white Australian and so there was just a wealth of difference in my house and I think it just made the most sense that that difference was channeled you know into fun and creativity and it just meant that I think we all started off a little bit more fearless than some of our peers at school because you know we just had this little tribe with one another and I'm so fortunate that you know a lot of my siblings and I are quite close in age and so we would egg each other on and we'd have Mm. sort of similar interests at similar times and then we just had parents who you know love to be audience members (laughs) and you know would watch those TV shows with us, would, you know, watch our plays, would hear us perform. Um, so I think it was 1000% encouraged. I never had that pressure of go and follow a traditional path. I never. That's such really a blessing, envis- isn't it? Totally. Mm-hmm. And I, I must say as well, my, my, both of my parents were like equally such fierce advocates of me, but I must say like my mom, she was really key. And when I was young and in the, in the blogging space, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. For sure. She was like the first person to sort of tell me that it was okay to act as if I was a professional when I wasn't, (laughs) when I was an 11-year-old or 14-year-old girl, Mm -hmm. to be like, no, this is how you phrase an email without apologizing for just responding (laughs) or Mm. asking a basic request. And she took me seriously. And I think being taken seriously as somebody's child, as a beginner, but somebody who was quite literally a child and a beginner at the same time was just instrumental to encouraging me to feel like creativity was an option for me. 
Um, In 2021, you wrote, I've been thinking a lot lately about what it means to be someone who strives to work in service of community growth and healing and who desires to create spaces where vulnerability and joy are kept safe and sacred. For some of us, it's work that lives in our bloodline and inheritance we choose to accept. You basically feel invincible when you have parents that back you and say, you can do anything and Mm -hmm. you're capable and and we've got you at the end of the day. But how do you think that their experience has actually influenced your like... Mm. Uh, interests, I suppose. Mm. Wow. I mean, you've done your research. Girl, I'm so impressed. We've got lots to talk yeah. about. <laughs> wow. I was not expecting lots to talk that. About. Um, wow. Okay. I just found that a really like poignant and um, powerful thank reflection. You. And I just want to hear more about like where wow. that came from. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Let me try and go back to where I was when I wrote that. Because yeah, it was two years ago. Yeah. I think... I have never lived, even I say this as somebody with ridiculous amounts of privilege, um, somebody who is cisgender and straight, but I feel like for the majority of my life, I've never lived inside binaries. And so I feel like that has just naturally facilitated um, so much nuance and like a necessity to think in the gray. And you know, being somebody who I I like to try and lead with 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 love and with light, but have also simultaneously found that anger is a really great fuel for me, crea- mm, like creatively. That's interesting. Um, it's not necessarily a sustainable, you mm. know, motivator, and I I think it should be sort of microdosed and coupled with other more fulfilling things. But I've just sort of, especially in these last three years, come to learn that my any work that I need, any work that I do needs to be rooted in joy and vulnerability. And for me, that vulnerability means being able to come as you are, mm-hmm. whether that is in all your messy glory, whether that is, you know, sharing an opinion that is not fully formed mm-hmm. and that is going to be subject to change, but it's just where you're at right now. Um, and I think the joy comes intrinsically from my family and from the way that we were raised. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think a lot back to my mom and to my mom's side of the family who, you know, did not grow up in Australia Mm -hmm. and who have experienced a lot of adversity in their lives and have always strived to rise above it. You know, they've, I'm trying to think of the best way to sort of. It's a safe space. Like you don't have to worry about um, saying anything in a um, culturally or politically correct terminology because the people that are listening understand like this is off the cuff Mm. and you know you can't prepare for Mm. what comes up in the moment but yeah just feel reassured that um I think it's when you are perceived as an other Mm -hmm. I just the, the the idea in my family has always been that it doesn't matter how people perceive you it doesn't matter what is being said or what the belief is you have to back yourself and you have to root for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think there have been a lot of times in my family, I'm sure that were driven by the need for survival, but also for joy. And there's always been this need, you know, when there are hard times to endure them in a way that is sustainable. And I really learned that myself sort of in 2020 is like, you don't have a choice if, you know, the patriarchal system, if white supremacy, you don't have a choice to an extent. You don't choose how they interact with your life and mm-hmm. how they impact your life. Mm-hmm. Nobody um, who is a woman or who's a woman of color is going to be invincible or immune to the effects of those systems. 
um, they will absolutely pose a danger to your mental health and sometimes quite literally your physical health as well, um, depending on where you are and who you are. But I think what I really love is that I was always taught that you have a choice to find joy Mm -hmm. and to sort of embrace radical joy as a means of fueling your resistance and also sort of being the biggest F you is when you don't seek permission from others, when you don't need a seat at the table because you're building your own shit, you know, you're sort of advocating for your community or finding the beauty in that, you putting your best foot forward is just the biggest possible resistance. Loving yourself when the world says that you should hate yourself um, or that you don't deserve to be here going, I don't, I don't care whether you think I deserve to be here. I am here and I am taking up space. I think that before I had the opportunity to realize those things for myself, to realize how powerful, um, sort of joyful resistance is, you know, being somebody who was mixed race or who was living in a larger body, who came from a big family, who didn't come from wealth at all, um, sort of forced me to, to figure that out eventually. There was no escaping it. And I think it positioned me in a place where it was just naturally the conclusion I was going mm-hmm. to come to, but it was so helped by, you know, the fearlessness of my family, yep. the conversation, like we always had very truthful and very real conversations from a very young age mm. um, with all members of my family, whether that was my mom's extended family, um, you know, my grandmother or her, or even, you know, my dad's side of the family. Um, we were treated like adults and our observations about the world were given seriousness and validity. Mm-hmm. And so we were always allowed to be really curious. Um Were there any beliefs in your household that as you've become older or perhaps you have more experiences in the media industry, are there any beliefs? Because I I believe that this happens Mm. for everyone. Mm. Um, Just it's at different times Mm. for different people. But when you've kind of um, gained a little bit more like independence Mm. and power, has there been any beliefs that you've moved away from that Mm. you had in the household or that you um, witnessed within your family that you thought that doesn't actually align for me or any challenges in the family with that? Mm. It's a good question. I think, you know, no matter how much work is done to sort of lay the path and lay the path down in front of me by virtue of me being, you know, very similar to but a different person to my mom or my dad or my siblings, you know, my experience, my belief systems were always going to be a little bit different. Mm. They're going to have a little remix applied yeah. to it. And I so think fresh. One, um, one thing that maybe I had to sort of realise on my own and come to my own conclusions about because they weren't, it wasn't an experience that you know, my mom or dad could tell me about was being biracial, Mm. you know, and speaking from this unique perspective of somebody who has an extent of white privilege, you know, being half white and potentially white passing, um, but who was also at this intersection of advocating for black issues, being very culturally connected to her black side, being African-American. And that I think has really been a strong positionality in my writing. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of been the one thing where that I can have helpful sort of conversations with my parents about, but it's not their experience and not something that they know how to navigate or have navigated. And so I think maybe some of the approaches I take to my writing or to my advocacy, um, or even just to my conversations, um, are informed by that specific experience that they can't directly speak mm. to. Um, 
Can- that's sort of the only thing that comes directly to mind. No, that's great. I was going to ask, can we speak about um, your experience with microaggressions? Mm. And for anyone who who is listening who potentially actually doesn't know, mm. they don't know what that term means, um, can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So microaggressions are something that like I wouldn't even have known what that word meant for so much of my life. I, would I have didn't been... know that until university, <laughs> yeah, literally. which I'm kind of like embarrassed about. But, but it's, it's such a thing. And I would have experienced a vast array of microaggressions before I knew what that word mm. meant. And so I kind of had like a, in my life, I kind of had a really weird, I feel like I did things backwards, essentially. I sort of figured out who I was <laughs> after everybody else had sort of, made their Labeled assumption that totally and it's sort of I would say honestly my sort of I don't want to call it an identity crisis I think it was more stepping into my identity mm-hmm. really um, or claiming my identity and being you know fully aware of it probably coincided with when I was 14 and starting out work in retail spaces mm-hmm. and so dealing with members of the public that I wouldn't usually come across mm-hmm. and you know, slowly starting to hear people ask questions and have curiosity. I didn't know, and now obviously it's so clear to me that a microaggression would be, for example, someone saying, you have amazing hair, mm. can I touch your hair? Or mm. like just touching it without asking mm. like, wow, your hair is amazing. Mm. Um, can you explain why that is yeah. not yeah. correct? Totally. Well, this, so this is actually the really interesting thing that I think, you know, and in, in sort of um, circling back to what I was saying earlier about that being sort of a really interesting component of my life that my parents or other people couldn't prepare me mm. for um, just by virtue of their experiences and their identity is that I sort of, I kind of see it as a strategic advantage, to be honest, and as a really humanizing thing that I get the perspective of sort of both communities without necessarily being a part of of both of them in the way that somebody who is fully black or fully white is, is that, you know, I sort of, I can empathize with people who are dealing with those microaggressions. I can speak to that experience. Mm -hmm. I can sort of provide insight on why those things are frustrating or come across in a really racialized um, lens that are defined by this sort of power and balance. Mm -hmm. But I can also empathize with the people who might accidentally be delivering those microaggressions because, I mean, I have so much proximity to them. Um, I have also had my own biases to unpack. I feel like by virtue of sort of navigating both worlds and being more palatable, I sort of, um, I, I, yeah, I feel like, okay, I guess, for example, the, the touching the hair, I think it's all about context. And mm-hmm. I think that is the case with most microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing with microaggressions is that they're those really uncomfy things that are said in a way that you second guess yourself and you go, mm, am I overreacting? But I know that it didn't land with me. They're really, it's a gut feeling. And it's so hard to sort of quantify that to somebody else because you just know, you don't necessarily know why it landed wrongly or or why it felt off, but you know that it felt off. Mm-hmm. And I think any minority of some sort living in Australia has navigated them because Australia is a very, it's a multicultural country that doesn't necessarily engage in a super integrated way, I believe. And so because of that, we sort of, we have, you know, 
we have a little bit of access to people who are different from us, but a lot of people, a lot of white people could get away with just only having white friends mm-hmm. or only living in white mm-hmm. spaces. And so it would make a lot of sense then that naturally, just by virtue of their experiences, they're not going to be seeing things in a race. They're not going to be seeing interactions in a racialized way. Um, I think your empathy on that, though, is a pretty incredible perspective to mm. have because it's certainly true that, yeah, just because someone hasn't experienced mm. a multiculturalism in their society or mm. where they live, they have a very um, limited view mm. on the world. But um, that would be hard to navigate and mm. to live through, I imagine. Totally. And it's picking your battles. Yeah. You know, for example, like I might have somebody that I don't know or that I've just met feel very comfortable sort of really threading their fingers through my hair and any, you know, just imagine that with any other totally, body part exactly. it's just so uncomfortable but and- it's, it's that weird thing of like people don't think the rules apply and I think that's actually where the microaggression lies mm. it's not necessarily inherently offensive to touch somebody's hair it's more that you are assigning a different set of standards to this person on the basis of their race. That they're different. Yeah, completely. Mm. Therefore, you know, I'm treating you as a human in a different way than I would everybody else. Mm. That's what it is. You know, I'm. It, there's nothing inherently offensive about, like, your hair being touched, but it's more, okay, with anybody else, with your peers, you would sort of hopefully operate with an understanding that maybe there's some consent mm. there or maybe there's a way to approach that. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, you automatically give yourself power and access to them. And it's this weird, and I think that's what it is. It's not understanding this assumption of like, I'm entitled to this or I don't have mm-hmm. to second guess this. Um, in terms of the sort of like empathy and insight, on one hand, I get the absolute frustration of experiencing that. And then on the other, in not having been able to live in segregation and having so many beautiful white or non-black friends, I know that, you know, it's really contextual. I'll have a friend who might just, you know, automatically touch my hair and then like, oh my God, I'm so sorry I should have asked. And yeah. I'm like, that's okay. I know you. You're my friend. The intention like, was totally yeah, well placed. We have um we have an assumed relationship. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's in that case, it's sort of that racialized dynamic I don't think is there as much because rather than it being about this a, is a stranger. Mm. Totally. And rather than it being, this is, you know, a white person just inviting themselves to touch a mixed race person's hair. It's like, no, these are two friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's different. Um, So I think I have been just by luxury of my privilege and not having to always be victim to racialized experiences because I am quite ambiguous to some people. It means that I am allowed space to step back and go, okay, these are people's intentions. I don't think that the intentions um, ever or always outweigh the impact, mm. but it means that I now have a point of relation whenever I want to speak to white or non-diverse audiences about why it is that they might make certain choices without realizing. I would love to talk more about your experience blogging. Yeah, that Obviously, you started that as, at a very young mm. age and it kind of... Um, you were doing book reviews, mm. I think, and then it moved into I think where it kind of exploded is during the Black Lives yeah. Matter movement yeah, totally. because of the social commentary. I'm just going to quickly read out to uh, the listeners something that you posted. Mm-hmm. Hello, it's your digestible black friend, the white-looking one who provides you with comedic relief 
whenever she uses black vernacular, shows you how to twerk or who knocks the sense into you when you're acting wild. You love it, but what you also love is the fact that I'm also half white, non-confrontational and willing to do all the heavy research research for you so long as you do the work, which rarely happens. Um, Can you talk to me about how you feel now Mm. looking back on that? Because that was a huge career moment Mm. for you and you gained a lot of traction Mm. online. Just talk me through that experience and the pressures and Mm. and what it was like for you. Totally. So I guess it's two different questions really. So to answer your first question um, about blogging, I came into blogging when I was 11 years old, it was that, you know, that sort of that school holiday between you've just finished year six and you're waiting for year <laughs> seven to start. You can't take leagues. a holiday, can you? You're like, what can I fill my six Literally, weeks with? <laughs> what project Before can I'm I start? Student, life gets really serious. <laughs> I have to seriously start my career right now. Literally. I'm like, behind. Is, I have to be an adult now. Grow up. This is the final power. Why are you me? And I am you. <laughs> Literally. And so I started my blog and I'd wanted to start it for a couple of I'd been thinking about it at that point mm-hmm. and funnily enough, the inspiration for a blog specifically came about because we had some sort of school assignment where we had this like internal blogging system mm-hmm. and we had to, I don't know, we had to write about some sort of meaningless, very school curriculum specific task. And I just kept posting more than what I was asked. <laughs> I just kept being like, yeah, that's cool. But like, I also want to say this. When the word count is 200, but you do 2000, yeah, nothing's changed. I was like, no, sorry, I'm just really enjoying this. Sorry, so please leave me be. This has got a lot of value. So yeah. Accept it. <laughs> totally. Or like we did, um, I think it was in year five, we did like um, little biographies on like Australian figures mm-hmm. and you only had to submit one. That was the assignment. And then I was like, you know what? I'm doing this in my spare time. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to keep mm-hmm. on giving them to you. If you want to keep reading them, that works. And so it was honestly just like a purely selfish thing <laughs> to begin with. I just was like, well, I like writing them, so you can read them. Well, you were 11 years old, so <laughs> thank God it was a selfish That's pursuit. <laughs> I'd be worried for you if you were doing you know, <laughs> high-pressure writing at yeah, 11 years old. <laughs> You're so right. Um I actually saw, um, I think his name is Jeff Kinney, the author of mm-hmm. the Dive on Pickard series. Yeah, yeah. He had a blog. And so I was like, okay, this is the summer of blogging. Mm-hmm. I'm becoming a blogger. And I actually had my blog turned on private. So it was only mm. accessible if you had the link. I knew this, but I didn't really think about what that would mean because I didn't really give a shit who read it. I just wanted mm. to write it. And honestly, I would sit just rereading it myself being like, wow. That's good. I ate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, if you revisit any of my very, very early posts, which I would really encourage you not to do, um, you know, my mom or my family members who I'd like sent links to would do the obligatory comment. Mm, and nice. um, one testament to my, to my mom, my siblings, is they treated it like this was more than just something they had to do. <laughs> like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they did such genuinely loving comments. And then more and more I started to post. Again, it was still fun and just a hobby at that point. And then I realised that other people had blogs and they were getting comments beyond their familial circle. Mm. And so I turned my blog on public and that just opened up so many doors for me because I sort of, you have nothing else to do when you're in year six going in year seven, um, but write about the things you love. And at the time I was really, really into reading. I still am. Um, but I think that, like, I think I've got posts about like, call me maybe, like watch this music video. Oh, just so it's all pop culture stuff. Yeah, all pop culture stuff. I think... Books were the part of my blog that were sort of the most um, 
they were they were like the that was the ma- the main content was around mm-hmm. books and that was also the content that sort of allowed me um to grow in my career mm-hmm. because through posting about books and going to book events I then got put on to like PR lists for mm-hmm. publishers and so that meant that I could eventually start getting basically any of the books that I wanted before they came out Mm -hmm, for free mm -hmm. as long as I did a review. When did the social commentary stuff start? So that, so yeah, so for a long time it was just I'm so enjoying talking about books Mm -hmm, and movies mm -hmm. and whatever I like and then eventually it was more lifestyle and like here's a wrap-up of what I've been doing Mm -hmm. and sort of slowly I injected more and more of my personality. Um, But I would probably say around... Probably 15, 16 is when the social commentary started to happen. And that sort of, I guess, coincided with me being exposed to feminist theory mm. and um, at the time the body positive movement as well. That's on my list yeah, to talk about. Usually sure. those mm-hmm. things I started to be really passionate about. And I think I at that point in time and in, in my teenage years, I really only spoke about them. Um, from my own perspective and just sort of how they related to me and how I felt about them. And I don't, it was probably not until I started to sort of be more um, widely read um, in those spaces and, and better informed that I started to feel like I could impart my own mm. judgments and my own perspectives in a way that was hopefully um, valuable to other people. And to sort of circle to your second question, that just absolutely all manifested in the Black Lives Matter movement and mm. sort of how I interact with that online. Because there's two spheres here, right? There's your personal mm. experience of going through that totally. being a black, half-black mm-hmm. woman mm-hmm. and having connections to people, yep. family and mm-hmm. communities in America yeah. where that is happening and all around the world. But then there's also your professional totally. life and feeling the pressure to mm. continue your social commentary yeah. around an issue that's so personally mm. affecting. Yeah. So just talk me through like some of the emotions yeah. that wow. that involved. That's a really that's a great observation because it is it is totally those yeah mm. it's it then I did feel sort of um, a professional obligation and it's funny because the professional obligation specific to um, this period of the Black Lives movement Black Lives Matter movement that we're speaking about um, that wasn't my first response to it my first response was a personal one and it was one of hurt it was one of confusion and pain and anger and i think because it was affecting me personally so deeply and i didn't feel like that was being reflected at the people that i was looking at and mm-hmm. how they went about their days and so i was really really angry about it and then then came the sort of um everybody like you know you've got to share an infographic like it's time to just dip your toe in and dip out and like share a black square totally and when it sort of came to that stage Mm. that was when I sort of started to feel the pressure to have a stance on it I think at first I was so zoomed in to the personal um but when I started to see that sort of happening I was like oh well I bet people are particularly people expecting that from me period because they're expecting that from everybody was that yeah from you sorry to cut you off yeah was that cathartic uh for you to write there was one I think uh carousel that you Mm, did that mm, I'm referring to mm. that gained a lot of traction yeah was that a cathartic experience for you to write that and you were just kind of trying to get yeah, everything off your chest? Totally. Or was there a professional like no, stance? Not in at that? all. Cool. And that is why it has become to me the biggest like <laughs> mystery of my career per se. Interesting. Because so at that time it was sort of I hadn't really said anything. I was feeling things. I had my personal response. And then I started to feel the maybe you should post about it now, um, which I think was heightened. I think everybody felt that 100%. There's that sort of like weird um, 
<laughs> social pressure online with and social movements. There was also the added thing of like, if you don't comment, yeah, exactly. if you don't commentate, yeah. like you are part of the problem, yes, right? Hugely. And so when you have that, and that applies to everyone, and then you have heightened the fact that people sort of at that point somewhat familiar with the fact that you often talk about race and culture um, and gender, it was just amplified. But I was sort of too enraged to speak meaningfully. And so how this particular piece came to be is I literally, it was probably like 11 o'clock at night and I couldn't do my uni work because like my fists were like Mm. closing up. I was so angry and it felt all consuming. And the thing about writing that makes me come back to it every single time is that for me, the process is the prize, if that makes sense. It's so wonderful when somebody tells you, oh my God, that was so well written or it really resonated with me. But like writing it, like the sense of fulfillment and achievement and clarity that I gain from basically just word vomiting all of my thoughts that at that time feel sort of incomplete or tangled up and then sort of vomiting them onto the page and and clearing it until it makes sense. I'm basically making my thoughts and feelings make sense to me. And they also become, I think what's amazing about writing in any creative pursuit, and Elizabeth Gilbert talks about Mm -hmm. this, is that you have this idea drop in or perhaps for Mm -hmm. you it was an experience Mm -hmm. which feels like it was this metaphysical concept and then it becomes 3D. And it's like you have to manifest it. You have to get it out of you. If it's in there, it'll keep you up at night until you you get it out. Yes. It's like this. No, go. please go. Go. No, I'm, I'm just getting so this excited. Is a, yeah, 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 because we experience, yeah. we know what it feels like. We totally. feel the same things mm-hmm. with this podcast. It was this like seed in my brain for three years that just would not mm. let me rest. I was mm-hmm. like trying to avoid it, trying to think of other ways mm-hmm. I could put my energy into other things totally. and you have to get it out. But mm-hmm. you being awake at 11 o'clock at night and feeling mm-hmm. the need to write this, um, I feel like that that says it all. I actually thought, so when I eventually posted, so I stayed up, um, And I think I made the Canva slides like a thousand different times (laughs) because I was like, oh my God, that word is not grammatically correct. This doesn't make sense. But I was just so desperate to just get it out. Get it out. I actually posted it because I sort of wanted people to shut up or I just wanted to have it out there or just to be like, like I genuinely actually thought I was going to lose followers. So it was the strangest (laughs) thing to me when I was like, oh, like I, I think I had in my, um, in like the caption of the post in advance. Like if you don't agree with me, that's fine, but I don't want to hear mm-hmm, about it. Like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to engage in the comments. Like I was very, def- not def- yeah, I guess defensive. Um, so I actually thought that I was going to have to like chuck my phone across the room, mute people, block people. So it was the strangest, strangest thing that it then became something that people responded so, so well to. And I think I read a comment last night when I was kind of looking through your work, um, the Bodzilla mm. being like, can I please donate you money for <laughs> like actually summing up my experience yeah. so eloquently? Thank you. Like having these ma- major sort of media personalities being like it was crazy. incredible work. If anybody goes through my followers because they've got nothing else to do and they see verified people and There's personalities. so many of them. It is the majority of them have come from that Mm. post. And so it was so weird to not only have it well received by my friends or my family or my personal following or mutual friends or acquaintances, but then for it to have um, sort of a wider reach Mm. and be reached by people that I'm like, oh, I'm not a verified person. I'm not a personality. And like, you're responding to my, like, 
I, usually this is the other way around. I'm commenting it like it was just it, so unexpected. It just opened up so many conversations too. Like I remember from that you did a few Instagram yeah, lives with friends totally, who yeah. are people of colour as yeah. well. And I remember you saying like putting question boxes mm. up and saying to our, our white friends like ask mm. us a question. Mm. And I think that was a huge burden and um, responsibility Mm. for you to take on at that time with everything else going Mm. on. But I just wanted to read one more quote from that post that really stuck with me. It said, dear white friends, please don't send your black friends paragraphs saying Mm. how much this has hurt you. I get it, but I can't carry your grief. Mm. Tell your white friends how outraged this makes you. Don't tell us we are the ones who live with it. Mm. I found that incredibly powerful. and. Now, this question that I ask, I understand the nuance and mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. irony of me asking you mm-hmm. this, but for you, what does good allyship mm. look like and what do we need? Yeah, yeah. In all communities. Yeah, Not totally. just for the black and white communities. Yeah, yeah. What does allyship actually yeah, look like? great question, and I'm so happy to answer it. I think um, it's a couple of different things. I think the these two particular um, recommendations – um, are only conclusions that I came to during this period that we're talking about. So they're sort of newfound. Um, the first one is, I guess the first one, it, it really applies to your interpersonal relationships. And so maybe it's not um, as helpful if you are trying to be an ally to a community that you don't have proximity to. But I think whenever you are a person from a marginalized community, the experience of, of the experiences of adversity that you um that you have feels so dehumanizing and it's like any bad thing that happens to you in those moments you just want to seek refuge with the people that you love and so I think what I found really confronting is that um although good intentions intentioned in that moment when I sort of just wanted my friends or extended family to show me love as sunny as the person that they've you know sort of comforted so many other times, it became very racialized, which I I can so understand why it would, because of course you're going to be thinking about it through that lens because that that was the the conversation that it was. But I think it's like, you want to be treated like a human. And for me, it's just all about empathy. It's going, oh, well, how, how would I feel if I was in that situation? How would anybody feel? What would they want? And I think people want to be listened to. Um, they want to be given space to sort of be imperfect and messy and angry. Um, and I think it's like having those check-ins and having those like, if you just want a distraction, I'm, I'm here. Because nobody, no one person, me or you, can solve white supremacy or patriarchy. But it's like good allyship on one hand helps you endure it and helps you get through and it reminds you that your life is so much more than than those things so I'd say on one hand it's it's just about really having empathy and treating that person as you would treat your friend which sounds like a really like counterintuitive thing to do because your friend is dealing with that because they're a human and xyz but I think in that moment I always want to be reached out to like like the Sunny that everybody has always known and love, loved, hopefully. <laughs> it's like totally. And it's like the concept of think global, act local. Yeah, it's like you can't change totally. the world, but you can yeah. change your world and the people people's worlds that are around totally. you just by being a good human. But Hugely. Um, thank the, you for your reflection. The only thing I will say, the second one, mm-hmm. um, and this is a big one, and I guess maybe more helpful to people who don't have that proximity. Yes. I think what I found, and I don't know if it's just because of the echo chamber that I exist in and the spaces that um, I sort of frequent, I think 
something that happened out of the Black Lives Matter movement is that it was great in inspiring people to take action and to start reading and to realize um, the multitude of things that they don't know. But I think it also gave some people the illusion that there was um, there was an endpoint, an endpoint where you go, oh, but I'm educated now. (laughs) Totally, I read white supremacy in me, so like Mm. I am, I'm woke. I'm a good, you know, I'm a good person. These are power structures that have existed for years and years and years that are going to outsmart us every single time. There is no way that any person is going to be the expert and is going to be perfect. And so I think, you know, I might have conversations with people and they always assume that any criticism, and it's, sometimes it isn't about them, but they always assume, oh, well, that couldn't be me because, like, I'm aware. Mm-hmm. So it's those other people. And I almost sometimes find, and this is, you know, not a fully formed thought, but sometimes a bigot is almost easier because they know and they they know who they are and they're not pretending to be <laughs> anything are else. shameless. Totally. They are unapologetic. Yeah. And then because you know who they are and they're acting sort of truthfully, you know how to deal with them. But I think I struggle to deal with people who are like, no, like, look over there. We're talking about these guys. Mm -hmm. Isn't it bad? And who aren't willing to sort of think about the role that they might play in it or the lessons that they still need to learn. And so I think it's um, as a good ally to any community. And this is also work that I'm doing. Um, It's never assuming that it isn't about you or that there's nothing you can do. It's never assuming or it's never – you can't determine if you're the mm-hmm, good guy or the mm-hmm. bad guy. I think absolutely you can back your gut and know, you know, um, yeah. A good person. Yeah, yeah, totally. But that sort of thing, I think it's just going, there's always more to learn. 100%. I can always, you know, let why can't, I should be curious and about what's going on. always more to kind of do in terms of connecting with mm. others. Like I, in my experience, I'm so grateful that my friend did this, mm. but at university, I, this is like maybe three years ago, mm-hmm. I made a comment about mm-hmm. someone in the class mm-hmm. that just was an off the cuff comment mm-hmm. um, that was othering them basically. Mm. And my friend said, that's not cool. Mm. And I said, I didn't mean it like that. Mm. And then I thought, hang on, mm. I did mean it like that. Mm. And I'm like, I need to admit mm. that I need to do better. Mm. And I think that's an ongoing process throughout your whole life totally. of like admitting when you fuck up, yeah. apologizing and saying, I'm sorry that that, because he was really offended mm. by it. And he was like, that's as someone who is also mm. an other, mm. is that how you see me? And, yeah. it, you know, now I'm seeing our friendship differently. Mm. And it's the first time I've ever had someone kind of pull me up mm. on the way that wow. I speak or act. What a and gift. Yeah. So, so yeah. grateful. But um, It is confronting though when that happens. It is confronting because because you yeah. think, oh, I'm not a racist yeah, person. Totally. But it's, it's like, yeah. of course you're not intentionally no, racist, no, but totally. you may have been raised in an environment Completely. or your experiences mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. are very sheltered so totally. that you don't relate to people that are different yeah. to you. And that's not even like, and I guess this is, you know, maybe this perspective is informed by also being half white and my proximity to whiteness, but I don't believe that the majority of people choose to come from that position. You know what I mean? Like, or that they're, they're aware that that is the position, exactly. which was my experience, like thinking, you know, I have the most amazing family, mm. they're supportive, mm-hmm. would never label them as yeah, racist people. Yeah. But of course, they're closed minded yeah. and they are white. Yeah. Like that that in and of itself is a huge um, sort of limiting lens mm, on the world. Mm, mm. And so I think it's just a commitment to, to doing the work for totally. the rest of your life. And don't, and I don't think people should feel shameful about that. Like I, like I often would get sort of 
um, white friends feeling really apologetic to me that they were, and mm. I was like, "Girl, I don't need, I don't need that. <laughs> that's I love you. That's your yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's I love you, you as you are. I'm not trying to check like that. I don't need to deal with that baggage, and you don't need and to deal with it And your own baggage, either, yeah, because it's also not it's not productive for me, but it's also not productive for you. Mm. And it's not about a place of sh- like the idea is that we all are meant to be different. Um, you know, part of accepting you know, the difference of, you know, others, people who are, I guess, othered by society, the implications of that are that difference is good everywhere. Exactly. And this is beyond race, right? This is not just like, I see your, I see the world differently to Mm, you because of race. We see it differently because of gender and, you know, everything, intersectionality. No one group is homogenous just because you share one sort of, Mm -hmm. um, identity marker yeah, you know what I mean totally. no one is the same so it's like difference is an inherently good thing mm. um I it's and I one thing I sort of have said consistently that I that people tend to find helpful and that I find helpful to remember is that um there's a difference between people who are white versus people who uphold whiteness mm. I could uphold mm. whiteness if I wanted to may not be as effective <laughs> but I could decide to do that many people of color do mm. um there are plenty of white people who who do not intentionally what, uphold whiteness. What does that mean, just briefly, upholding mm. whiteness? To me, I see whiteness as this system that privileges um, and centers the white experience above all else and sees it as the universal point of reference. Um, and and we see that in media. We totally. see that in sport. We mm-hmm. see that in so many different uh, sectors of life. Completely. And then when we see whiteness as the default, then we see difference as an abnormality and um as a as a failure and as something to be hidden or as something that is something that is okay I'm trying to think of a a way to actually explain this in um a sort of a a more tangible example so one of my loved ones for example who is white (laughs) will watch something like the Oscars um it was actually it wasn't the Oscars it was one of the award shows Mm -hmm. and go oh my gosh it just seems like now everything is becoming about black people diversity yeah totally okay and there's the implication that you know um that means that only like if there's the implication that if there's a lot of black people on stage this is just a black film rather than being like so we think that anything that is not centering this one perspective is like suddenly it becomes like race people think that race only enters the room with a person of color race is always in the room so if you're gonna start you know determining you know a film with a majority black cast as a black film then you have to admit that everything else that you consider the norm is a white film and so if we're labeling things in that way then then what does it say then that the majority and what you assign as the norm is just something that upholds whiteness you know what I mean and I think upholding whiteness means that you just you are committed to the blinders that happen when that is your only perspective. You are committed to perpetuating those systems, to excluding people, marginalizing people and centering your voice above everybody else. Um, And I think that, yeah, people of any background can do that. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think it comes more naturally when that's your inheritance in a way. Um, But it's a choice, Mm -hmm. I think, eventually. Um, before we change gears, mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you for your generosity yeah, in thanks. sharing and having this discussion with me because beyond, you know, um, our race, it's mm. like two friends as totally. well having this Completely, conversation, yeah. which I think. And I feel so safe. Like I'm glad. I feel thank so you. like I want to answer. I want to be a part. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
but there is more to you mm-hmm. than just your racial commentary. Mm-hmm. So I want to shift gears a little bit. You're very passionate about the body positivity mm. movement. Um, you did write an article for Mamma Mia called Your Body Isn't a Failure, the six things that you can do immediately to stop hating your body. Mm-hmm. Um, just in your own words and as much as you feel comfortable mm. doing so, what has your experience been with your body? Mm. My gosh, my body has not often been a friend of mine. I hate that that is like such an uncommon experience and it seems to be an experience regardless of, you know, what the number is on the scale. It seems to be like none of us are immune to sort of... So many people can relate to that Totally. I feel like if you're a woman, you're just automatically at war with your body and half of that is what society has told you and the other half is, you know, what you have put on yourself and the sort of... um, lack of compassion and kindness that you direct towards yourself. I do wonder if that's a lifelong thing. Like I've never dropped that as as, no matter what size I've been, Mm. no matter what cosmetic Mm. things I've had done my whole life, that it's been there, that narrative of like I can be better. My body can be Mm -hmm. more appealing or stronger Mm -hmm. or sexier or whatever. Hugely. And like I think this is something that I I even think about when it comes to like to dating or when I think about my relationships with other people is like I can do you know it'll be a lifelong battle and it will it won't be linear but I can decide to commit myself to you know achieving a position of body neutrality I can commit Mm. to a life where I am sort of vetoing or not buying into beauty norms and standards and rules and regulations where I'm trying to challenge fat phobia. That's a life that I'm trying to pursue. It's not an easy one and it's certainly not linear because I Mm. fail it nearly every day. But I can make that decision. I can actively do the work to tell myself, your body is not failure, blah, 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 blah. But I'm still going to wake up and live in a society that is fat phobic and that is patriarchal. And I think what I always maybe get defeatist about is like, I can do all the work, but what does it, and I know it, I, I know logically that it, it does matter. What, you like, about what yourself good does, does it do? Yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. like, well, I can't airdrop that knowledge to the person across <laughs> from me. <laughs> to like, all the men who totally, employ me. Yeah, exactly. Like far out. Totally. And yeah. like, I think for a long time, um, that perspective has really played a part in how I see myself as a romantic option for other people and so explain that I've often said and I have kind of I've I guess for example living in a part of a really big family with majority girls I've sort of you sort of automatically compare yourselves I mean women compare themselves to other women all the time we know it's a thief of joy but we're also human so we do it and I think in terms of um how often I was complimented or pursued um, or desired, to me, my experiences um, feeling like a romantic interest or feeling pursued or desired um, were just incomparable to the way in which my other sisters, at least this is how I feel if you speak to them, they're like, you're crazy. Mm. Um, It just was incomparable. And so I sort of felt like I was operating from a place of deficit or like you know, my difference in this case was a disadvantage. And because me and my siblings are so similar, in my mind, I automatically went, it's because I'm the largest one. It's because of my size. And I think, you know, through just living in a society that tells all of us that we're fat and being fat is wrong, um, when A, not everyone is fat, but B, being fat isn't wrong. Mm. Um, And even people who aren't 
technically, even if yeah. there is a definition around what fat is, yes. still feel feelings of exactly. being too large exactly. as exactly. a woman. Exactly, exactly. I have felt that yeah. and I would never like um, probably fit some sort of guideline mm-hmm. to being overweight, but it's like a societal thing totally. of celebrities taking a Zempic and You can being, always be smaller. You can always yeah. be smaller. Mm-hmm. Like that is such a dangerous, dangerous game totally. for women to play. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah it's, yeah, it's a hard one. How do you think that we, or what do you think that we need in the body positivity well, it's so, movement? It's so hard because I guess for me, like I always carried that around as, okay, well, this is where I'm different. So it must be because of that. Um, and I looked at the people at least who I saw getting attention and I was like, well, they don't look like me. So this is what this was. So this, and that's something I'm actively working. That's a, I guess, a, a moment of vulnerability in this podcast. And for anyone who knows who listens to it is like, that is definitely something I'm working to overcome is this idea that like my size is something people have to look past. Is that in a dating con- context or work context or, mm, or all of life? I think all of life, but I think it's predominantly romantic. Mm. Because that's so, it's, it begins superficially because you don't know how amazing someone is, you know, when they haven't opened their mouth. So the first thing you're judging them on is how they look. Mm. Um, I guess it's funny because I think in, in things like work or my friendships, I don't lead with that or that's not the leading concern or insecurity. And I think that's because one, they're less, um, they're less appearance based. Granted, having priv- pretty privilege would definitely help um sort of it will help privilege the way in which you move in those just spaces. for those who are listening uh pretty privilege is basically yeah when you're an attractive person mm-hmm. you have privileges that other people who are mm-hmm. not attractive do not mainly in a professional sense yeah, but also totally. in dating and and many other contexts yeah, as well totally um but i think where where i lack confidence or have lacked confidence in my body I sort of make up in spades for that in the professional setting with, you know, trust in my abilities or passion or curiosity. And so I think it's very, um, it's it's much easier to sort of sideline the body concerns mm. with, um, with roles or situations where I feel like I'm providing something and I feel like I'm being, if that makes you sense. You feel like, like you're enough. Yeah, totally. But you are enough mm. in, in all ways. Totally. But it is interesting how it's like, well, because I'm, I don't tick all the boxes yeah. in my appearance and mm-hmm. my weight, then I'm going to have to overcompensate in all totally, these other areas. Totally. And whilst weight is not the deciding factor for me, there mm-hmm. are other areas of my mm-hmm. life where I've thought, well, I'm not, I don't mm-hmm. look this way, so mm-hmm. I'm going to do all these other mm-hmm. things. Um, and it does come up in dating, I think, because yeah. like you said, we've got dating apps. People are judging off what totally. you look. They're swiping you based on, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You're serving yourself up, being like, mm-hmm. this is what I look like. And I think... <laughs> Any man who listens to this will be like, what the hell? <laughs> we actually have a pretty solid male list. Maybe because my first episode was about orgasms. So but um, keep, The majority of my work does keep not have listening, a male demographic. Please. So if you want to <laughs> diversify. Um, I just, you know what it is? I always assume, and I was actually chatting to my friends about this last night, and part of me, and this is me being vulnerable, part of me is like, oh my gosh, you can sound so pathetic thinking this. But I'm like, no, I can simultaneously be somebody who battles with, you know, body dysmorphia and security, but is also confident and has self-respect and thinks, you know. You are multifaceted and totally. you, this is your experience and this is exactly what my therapist mm-hmm. said to me in my first episode. I said, I am so scared to do this mm. and speak about my trauma and speak about my sexual like shortcomings. Mm. Beca- Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> I do that quite regularly actually. <laughs> Funny. Um, but 
you know, like I'm nervous to do that because the men that are listening, mm. I'm worried that they will see me differently because totally. I have this persona, at least in my head, mm. that I'm like this strong, yeah, sexy, totally. goddess, mm-hmm. magic woman. Mm-hmm. And then the reality is mm-hmm. that like I'm not that. Mm. But you can be both. Yeah. You can be a strong, powerful, confident person and you can mm-hmm. have the vulnerabilities and you can be working through your shit. Totally. And it would be weird if you weren't. Yeah. You would be a narcissistic, egotistical yeah. maniac. <laughs> and we've all encountered those and they are not fun to it's be around. It's not good. No. You want to see that someone has that That's side so to them. True. And I think a big thing when it comes to dating and relationships mm. is connecting on mm. that deeper level. It's like allowing someone to see you, mm. allowing someone to see what's behind the persona. Totally. It's like, yes, you have that. Mm. You're a bad bitch, but like what else is totally. there? And I think that's why like when I look at my female friendships, my God, I've won the lottery. Mm-hmm. Like all of them are just so like they're just so intimate and vulnerable and supportive and just mm-hmm. like the best thing ever. And I'm extremely vulnerable with them. But, but I, I, I was going to say, <laughs> guess what? They're like that because you are yeah. too. And That's I don't, what you're yeah, bringing. I don't, I don't think I lead with that in mm, romantic settings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I was going to say that I feel like I could be judged for, but YOLO, is that YOLO. I do. <laughs> We're really getting into our culture I know. I know. It's coming. It's coming. Wait till Make I ask you about Harry literally. Styles. Oh, God. I just think that, you know, given the position of power that men are in, and um, this is a gross generalization, but the lack of interest in challenging those systems or in even just inquiring about them, my immediate immediate assumption is going to be that anyone I find attractive, well, I doubt they've challenged fat phobia. I doubt they've challenged the messages Mm. in the media. So they probably, even if they don't um, intrinsically or automatically feel that way because sometimes you like who you like. Like it's, you might be like, I had no idea I found that attractive, but apparently I do. But it it seems to me that, you know, men are so concerned with adhering to the specific standard because it's also seen as um, indicative of their worth and their power. It's also conditioned into them. Exactly. Through movies and porn and all of it. And I just, I think, you know, it's obviously a very um, gendered belief. There's this idea that women seek introspection and reflection and that women work on themselves and then they don't often see that um, reciprocated in the men they interact with. And so my assumption is, well, if you're not even working on yourself, (laughs) then you probably haven't challenged all the rest of Mm. those things that are going to tell you, oh, she might be too large or too, you know, ethnically diverse. And so I think because of that, I just automatically assume that I'm not going to be the one that they're interested in because I I <laughs> I don't trust that they're smart enough to have done the work mm. that w- that all the women in my life are trying to do. I understand the um difficulty around like quote unquote giving someone a yeah. chance because it's something that I struggle with a lot. I mm. like know what I want mm. and I know what I like and I very rarely will like go outside my comfort mm. zone with dating. But I guess what I'm interested in is would you consider dating someone or perhaps giving someone a chance mm-hmm. that is open-minded and willing mm. to do the work and willing Mm -hmm. to educate themselves and challenge their belief systems but perhaps isn't there yet or Mm -hmm. do you feel like you need to be met with you know the experiences that you've had Mm -hmm. and and the life that you've lived Mm -hmm. with someone who gets it I think I think the the first option I feel like it's I just want to meet somebody who has empathy and curiosity and we can go from there. And also who supports you and backs totally. you. I think at the end of the day, like we can all be better people totally. and we can all be yeah. more educated and um, more empathetic. Mm-hmm. But it's like you love 
I think when you find someone and when I find mm. someone who we want to be with, it's they will love us for who we are. Totally. We won't have to prove anything. No, and and that is because of and not in spite of all the different parts of our exactly. identity. Because um, that's what you love about your friends, right? And totally. that's what I love about my friends is that they have so much depth to mm-hmm. them and it would be a shame to not show that to Completely. a potential partner Completely. for fear of, uh, I guess, being rejected. Yeah, being rejected or being too much. And I think as mm. well, like, you know, as, as much as we're having this conversation about how difference is important and something we should recognise but not be ashamed of, um, there are also so many ways in which we're all similar. And I think it's equally as powerful, um, especially when those, especially when we're confronted with those points of difference to connect mm. um, over the similarities that we have. You know mm. what I mean? Um, and I think that's sort of part of intersectionality is accepting and just um, being aware of and celebrating like the different insights and perspectives that somebody else can give me because their lived experiences is different um, and having an awareness of how that might, um, you know, impact where they're coming from when they say different things or how they see the world or how they're perceived but then also being like wow we're all humans Mm. and like that is the equalizer of experiences and so we can't like I just think you have to be able to find something in common with everybody we're all just figuring it out that's the the main thing um I am keen to talk about one more topic before mm-hmm. we wrap up, which you're currently working in the media industry mm-hmm. as a journalist. Uh, we've both worked at Channel 10. Mm-hmm. We've both had some similar experiences. I guess um, like your current employer, I really respect and I think they're doing amazing things and you don't have to name any mm-hmm. names or outlets mm-hmm. or individuals, but do you think that there's any sort of damaging rhetoric currently going mm. on in the media industry, in the news industry? And if so, what is that and where is that mm. coming from? Like we've spoken mm. about uh, racialized mm. commentary. Mm. We've spoken about gender mm. and body positivity. Is there anything else that you're seeing? Like a lot mm. of stories come out and you're thinking, no, this cannot mm. be happening. This is not good. Yeah, definitely. Great question again. Um, I just think, and for context for listeners, Um, I'm an American citizen. I just think Australia plays it so safe and so boring and we do a lot of talking without actually saying anything meaningful. Is this in news or in politics or everything? Hmm. I guess I guess in news and media, I would say because of maybe our like our legal system around it or you just think people are scared. I think we're just narrow minded. I think the fact that like I think we're you know what it is. So I, from a young age, would often go to the Sydney Writers Festival, All About Women's Festival, and I would always connect with um, the international speakers from the US and try and make myself known to them. And almost like 90% of the time, probably 100% of the time, um, if that speaker was somebody who spoke about race or gender in their work and with the audience, they would always say to me, I can't believe we're at this stage in the like where you guys are so far behind us Mm. there's so much work to be doing maybe I think that's in part because we are such a young country um obviously it's a country that did not um begin when white settlers white invaders arrived um so there's a rich history um there and a lot of that I mean it's great to see that Mm -hmm. news outlets are kind of doing more to champion those first Mm. nation voices but for 99% of our history, those stories and those voices never even made it onto the stage. Totally. You know, so there's so much to be done. Hugely. Um, But we're such a, we're we're a young country, um, but we're also, and it's sort of what I touched on before, is that we're a multicultural country, but I actually think that people really ham that up. (laughs) Like when politicians say that, because what I witness 
and I don't witness it so much in my in my personal life or in my echo chamber, but like we can afford to live. Well, most people um, can afford to live in segregation, even though we are we are a society in a country that should be fully integrated. It's not like we're living in Jim Crow, but like you can very easily move to a suburb and just have white friends. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's harder. I mean, it's it was only like. I don't think I could survive if I only decided I only wanted black or mixed friends. There's simply not enough. I also would never choose that because I don't think you should ever choose to just like, I want to be friends with everybody. Yes. Um, but like in terms of population, simply would not have been possible. Um, but for white people, it is. And so I think I see we live in a multicultural country, but there's not a lot of um, interaction between different cultural groups. There's not a c- lot of cultural sharing. Do you feel like that's a fair Totally, yeah. because I basically grew up in a yeah. suburb like that. Yeah. And my cousin, um, she moved to Melbourne when she was like 17 mm. and loves the culture and the mm. vibe there. And she's a performer. She's a dancer. Mm. And she had her daughter. Mm-hmm. And she came home to where we grew up mm-hmm. to basically have family support. Mm-hmm. And within like six to nine months of living there, she said, I can't raise my daughter here. I actually can't do it. Like I refuse to let her think that this is what the world is like. And so she's moved her back to Melbourne. And I just like so respect that because I think you're making a decision that you are going to um, integrate her Mm. into a society that's actually reflective of our country and is reflective of your, like her social circles, Mm. which she's made um, an effort to kind of, as you said, Mm. be friends with everyone. Mm. And I think it would be such a loss and such a shame for people to stay in their safe zone. Totally you know, where they're comfortable. Yeah. It's, I think it's so, bo- like, there's so much to learn and So much history. Enjoy. There's so many stories. Yeah. So many great foods. Like, there's, just, there's so many exactly. reasons to. But I think because of that, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind in terms of how we play it safe or what my criticism is, is that you will see far too many conversations um, happening, you know, and this happened during the Black Lives Matter media coverage, um, but even, you know, circling to things like... Um, sort of invasion day or first mm. nations issues that have an all white panel talking about it isn't it horrible and i'm it like just does, it just is so obvious that that is not the solution it's not the solution and yet media outlets have the balls basically totally. to do it i totally. don't understand and it's funny that it's funny to consider that playing it safe because i actually think that's like making a really bold statement and not being playing it safe but in australia um anything that doesn't uphold the white majority or white solidarity is seen as like risky or too much. Um, And I think, you know, the fact that they're having those conversations in only white groups is reflective of the fact that they probably, that's the conversations they're having in their personal lives. Mm. Because if you are somebody who in your personal life knows someone who is black or queer in the First Nations community, you know inherently that they are the people that need to be included in this conversation Mm, mm, mm. as a priority. Mm. So if that doesn't come in your mind, then that's reflective of your personal life. And so I think um, because of how easy it is to live segregated in Australia, the media reflects that. And I just think then that means that inherently conversations are going to be more one-dimensional, more boring and less impactful. And I just think why waste the airtime? Exactly. I think um, is. I I asked this question Mm. to another guest, but she's a white woman. Mm -hmm. And I think also her career and what she does for – in her professional life Mm -hmm. impacts how she Mm -hmm. sees this topic. But when you talk about all white panels, Mm -hmm. do you think there's something to be said for tokenism Mm. and perhaps putting a black person on the panel just Mm. so that they can, like, tick that box or having, you know, mixed-race people Mm. in a TV advertisement? Yeah. Um, Oh, my God. Do you think that that is a positive thing that that person is – is getting 
to the arena mm. or do you think that the intention isn't there so it doesn't count? Oh, my God. It's so hard. And it's it's a constant renegotiation. You have to pick your battles. Um, I think an example is – I hope this person doesn't listen to this. <laughs> it's something I've been actually reflecting on recently. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a website um, platformed – um, a shoot and like editorial that I was a part of and the whole message behind it was like you need to hire and pay um, creators of colour because... That was the campaign? Yeah. Okay. And um, supposedly, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the specific details. That was, so that was, that was the idea. Um, supposedly, I guess if I had to categorise that shoot, it was more in the modelling side of things. Mm-hmm. I guess that was the fashion um, industry and I don't have a lot of um, access or experience in the fashion industry but I do in the media part and my role in that project was as a writer so all of my insights and the standards and expectations I had were coming as a writer um, anyway we it was a gorgeous gorgeous shoot and had just so much diversity in terms of models and people behind the talent and um, I think I put with it a really lovely written piece that you know I wanted everybody to read but while that was the strong message, um, and sorry for context, what sort of birthed that shoot was that um, the creator of it had told me, she works in the, in the fashion industry, is that a lot of people are saying, no, I want, di- I want to diversify my, my talent. I just don't know any um, black, you know, First Nations, queer X, Y, and Z. Oh, man. Yeah. No. And so this was her attempt at going, okay, well, I hear you. That's insane, but I hear you. Yeah. Here. They're are no out excuses. There. <laughs> I'm going to show you. I'm going to rally they them. Exist. Avengers Assemble. They exist. So oh, work harder. Man. That's not an excuse. Um, and so a great project. And you could argue great that that um, website was hosting it. But none of us got paid. Mm, oh, my God. The yeah. irony in that. Exactly. Oh, and no. so for me, that is a great example of tokenism. <gasps> the irony I know. in that. <laughs> Pay your black creators yeah, or, sorry, totally. your yeah. creators of colour, yeah. but we're not paying out. Yeah. <laughs> no, Sunny. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, you could, I, I'm sure you could argue that the person who – was responsible from the shoot, um, who wasn't part of, who, who came to this website with it, um, it probably could have advocated for mm-hmm. us to be paid. So there's definitely or, other roles that people could have, pay, have played in that. Um, but I think it's a really big statement to publish that and be the one who makes the decision whether or not there is financial remuneration and decide no, you know what I mean? Um, so to me that's tokenism because if you walked on that site Welcome to that site because that's what you do. If you searched it up and looked at it, you'd be like, this is such a diverse site. It's doing amazing because they're on the front. They're on the borders. And, you know, like I hear people in my life when they say, oh, it feels like suddenly now every person on the ad is curly hair, every this and that, mm. which is like I understand that sentiment. It's not accurate or true, um, but it's definitely becoming more prevalent so I can mm. get where that's coming from. But if like behind the scenes the treatment was horrible and they're not being paid um, and it's something to tick a box, that is tokenism for me. Totally. And like I don't really care about those obvious gestures. gestures. A lot of people, I actually find that they're the easiest way for um, companies who have zero interest in diversifying their in their staff or um, – there's a lot of signaling going yes, on. Yes, it's virtue signaling. Yeah, That's virtue signaling, yeah. So I actually think it's like it's the stuff behind the scenes that I'm the most interested in. In terms of panels and diversity and being a token, um, 
sometimes you are going to be the token and like I have to re- reconcile of like what that means and sometimes I go oh I hate that I don't want to just tick that but other times I go well okay I'm in a position of power here by being in a, a space um with people who don't often come across someone like me let me just try and ace this and you know leverage whatever privilege I have in being here and in being palatable to try and get across the messages that they wouldn't normally receive. I imagine that would be difficult though because you would question your work yeah. just as a writer or as totally, a creator. It's like totally. why am I actually here? Mm-hmm. And I think because I've come from like a branding mm. or an, um kind of like a bit of an advertising background is like I just am so cynical yeah. when I see even TV ads or YouTube ads yeah. where it has like six different um, mm. ethnicities mm. in the one ad. And I just think, yeah. why did you do that? Yeah. Like it, it it just doesn't seem authentic to totally. me. And it kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth. And yeah, you obviously hugely. want people of all different ethnicities mm. to have opportunity mm. and to have uh, access to a seat at that table, mm. but not when it's to like boost the brand um, brand image. Mm. And, it's, and again, it's so contextual. Like, you know, f- for example, um, I saw a production of something that was, um, I guess you would call it gender flipped. It, it was, mm-hmm. it was ne- like you had females playing male roles, whatever. And I had, I interpreted that as largely being a signal of like, we're an alternative production. Mm. It did not benefit the play at all it was it was not actually a distraction it was even a distraction because you go wait hold on am I meant to believe that she's like a really grubby girl or is this a man with facial hair like you're like I don't know and it doesn't and it's also why I think adaptions um or adaptations like um is it ocean was it ocean's 11 that was the female yeah like the yeah 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 um you know stories that um are part of franchises that were traditionally with men but you just flip them if you're not actually then like if you're just having a woman, and I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened with that film, it's been too long since I've seen it, but like if you just have a woman there but she's just delivering male lines or it's such an out-of-touch or um, unconnected experience, then it's adding zero value. It's actually more mm. of a distraction. You know what I mean? Like I'd rather, if you're going, if you're committed to telling a story from this one lens, then I'd rather you just, just do it with the it. person you intend yeah. to rather than being distracted. So it's like it's not always like beneficial. Like there are there are, is room for stories that are, you know, can only be told from a white person because it only makes sense because that would only be that, you know, like there, I think it is super contextual. And I, mm. I really agree with you about the sort of um, the cynicalness and the branding thing. That's something I'm navigating because Especially I, on social media. It's so hard. You honestly just, when you work in social media, like we both do, mm-hmm. you just don't trust anyone. No. You're like, everything is a facade. Everything is totally uh, constructed and construed mm. and... um even in terms of creators, like not brands, mm, I just yeah. think like even your commentary on certain things or posting totally. with certain brands can mm. seem very inauthentic. Mm. I guess that's the nature of social mm. media and especially when money's involved. Totally. It's like people's morals and values go out the window. Yeah, But it's hard to navigate because you just think where are the, the real people yeah. and the real brands actually doing the work mm. and making an effort? Where are they? And you also don't want to... Um, undersell yourself and limit yourself to one perspective like with labels I think labels are helpful because they provide context and I think they're helpful because I've definitely seen that if you don't label yourself people will Mm, um and so I'd sort of like to get in there and confirm the narrative um or take ownership of the narrative um but it's also tricky because they can be limiting you know like I I'm very aware of the fact that like 
I've never, I have, I've done things I'm proud of since, but the post or the written bit of content that has been the best received was when I was speaking very specifically about my experience being mixed race. And, you know, from then I had a lot of opportunities that were wanting to come from that perspective like that's sunny you went on the abby chat film yeah. podcast and like so many things came of that from you just being the true totally. version of you um because that's where your power mm, is as well for, for all of us mm. um but it's hard then because then i was like oh god this is getting to a point where i feel like i've said what i need to say for that point in time obviously time changes you've got more things to say and you know there are different sentiments even in my post that you know maybe my position has evolved on um but you know i I would get to a place where i'm like i've 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 said what i have to say i'm my my cup is empty i'm burnt out um it doesn't feel fun. It feels important and necessary, but it doesn't feel fun. Um, and then I felt like people were only interested if that was what I had to offer. And that was really confusing mm. because I saw that as like one part of me. And even not only was it one part of me, but it's not a part of me that I look at with, it, when I look, when I think about my race, my first response isn't anger or like victimization. Like there's actually so much pride and joy. Um, and so I think when you brand yourself, you've I think you've always got to leave the door open for every part of like I just I always want to advocate for people to show up as their full selves and that means that you know yes I might be a freaking you know (laughs) online warrior on the weekend about this but then then I'm also somebody who enjoys Survivor or I'm a girl who loves the rom-com like we're all multifaceted and so totally yeah and it's like how do I hold space for all of those things um when I know that in terms of what is most profitable, some things are more profitable than others. Exactly. I have to be aware. I have to be wary of that with um, having guests on the podcast because mm. it's like obviously everyone has a, a very multifaceted mm. personality. But the reason that I usually want to talk to people is because that they have a very mm. specific stance on a certain narrative, mm. and I'm aware that they're more than that. So it's providing a space to like. I had Trent Knox on, who's mm. the founder of a run club. He's battled through. Um, addiction and sobriety mm-hmm. and like that is part of mm. his story but that is not his whole story totally. so it's giving people a space to do that which I think wider media mm. needs to do as well totally um and I think in terms of like balancing um leading with the parts of you that are more profitable um in the media space I think you have to always keep checking in of like, okay, so if I'm choosing to speak about this because it's more profitable, am I actually diluting or underselling the message? Because for me, and, you know, I think that is best captured by the fact that like I wrote that post out of necessity and not at all because I thought it was going to do well. I thought it was going to do horribly. I was ready for it to end me. I just needed to get it out. Um, It needs to be motivated by, I think this is an important thing to say, not Mm, by authenticity yeah totally whereas like oh people only want to hear like for example I have seen people who are people of color um or who are black specifically get job opportunities because that's the profitable part of them to talk about this and that and I'm like you have your own experience which is valuable but you're so yeah you're not yes and you're actually probably not the best person for this and that's also involved me sometimes saying no to opportunities and going I'm not the best person for this. And the message and the movement is way more important to me than what I'm pocketing at the end of the day. And so that's the battle of like, it's one, you not wanting to just limit yourself to one thing, but it's also going, I care about those one, two, three, four things so much that, you know, the purpose and the motivation has to come above any Mm -hmm, profit or mm -hmm. interest or what other people say. So you kind of have to have non-negotiables there. Um, 
so that you do it justice. Before we close today, is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you would like to speak about or reflect on or that I haven't asked? I mean, you've done such a fabulous job. Thank you. I think um, I I guess want to throw my hat to you and just say like to be invited onto this podcast as, you know, someone that you think is interesting or inspiring is just the ultimate tribute because I think of you as endlessly inspiring and wonderful and um, it just makes me think about you to me it's funny because you posted a reel the other day of I am woman like (laughs) I just the pinnacle of just womanhood self-actualized and in action and you lead with fearlessness and empathy and curiosity you are multifaceted and by virtue of being that, you lead by example and give other people permission to do so. And so I want to shout out you and I also just want to shout out just womanhood and sisterhood and, you know, what a source of power womanhood is mm-hmm. um, and how diverse and multifaceted it is. Um, and, yeah, just the women who are doing amazing things like yourself. Thank you. That honestly um, is like one of the kindest thing things anyone has ever said to me. So I really appreciate Thank, thank you. Um, I feel the same way about you but to finish i'm gonna do a few rapid fire cool. questions i always wanted to do this <laughs> rapid fire. it's like yeah. knowing us can we actually condense our sentences yeah. into like one yeah. word or one sentence probably yeah. not but yeah. we'll try mm-hmm. what's your favorite harry Styles song if you had to listen to one song for the rest of your life <laughs> dramatic <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm just speechless oh my god i actually thought about this the other day <laughs> it's like, okay, I'll commit to only saying one word, but I'll say it like in 10 years' time. <laughs> um, her house our song. Top two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst guest. I'm the worst guest ever. Um Fine Line or Ever Since New York. Thank you for the consideration that went into that. You never know, he may be listening one day. <laughs> we may be interviewing him. Yes. Um, what would be your last meal on earth? Oh. <laughs> this is just the first thing that came to my mind. I don't even believe it. Chili con carne. Mm, okay. <laughs> I'm such a bad, like. Niche. Yeah, <laughs> you, like, I'm such a bad food motivated person. Like, mm. I can't tell you what, like, when people are like, what do you really eat? And I'm like, I, I honestly know. eat, like, the same three meals yeah, over literally. and over again. And I, never I just want to be full yeah. and not constipated. <laughs> so if I've something got, can do I've that. I've got something for you. <laughs> Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Metamucil. Yeah, <laughs> Perfect segue. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I love you. If we had 10-year-old Sunny mm-hmm. sitting here right now, what would you say to her? Oh, my gosh. Or 11-year-old Sunny yeah. who started blogging. I just would say, like, keep that, like, fearlessness. I think... The eleven-year-old, ten-year-old Sunny was who existed before imposter syndrome got in the way, and I'm so glad that she was so proactive because she's the reason that you know I am wherever I am today. Um, and I would just say like that. I think I think when we're kids, we have that fearlessness and that unapologeticness, and we're like so tapped into the fun, crazy parts of ourselves, and we take up space. And I think my life's work is just trying to go back to her and go back to that. Finally, everyone is asked the same question on mm-hmm. this podcast, which you've probably heard, but Sunny, what is the meaning of life? I honestly think that the meaning of life is to live 
in a way that is authentic to you, that encourages other people to live authentically to themselves. I think it's to connect in a really meaningful, vulnerable, intimate way and to love as hard as you possibly can. Um, Depending on whether or not, you know, people see children for themselves, I feel like it's about making the world, while you're actively um, living life for yourself in a loving way, I believe that has a ripple effect, you know what I mean? That changes how children are brought into the world. And I think it's just making things better and better for the next generation. I think we're all so connected. It's just doing the work so that the next generation lives better and that we're learning, we're breaking generational trauma, we're moving on and we're just trying to live as deliciously and as fully as possible while doing that. But I think it's love. I think love is the meaning of life. Thank you again. I just want to say thank you for your generosity and your vulnerability. I know we spoke about some really big topics and it wasn't your job to come here and educate us, but you were gracious enough to offer insights and experience. Um, As I said, you're an incredibly inspiring person. You're doing amazing work and you're also just a queen and I love you. Like you're fun to be around. You've got a um, vivacious energy and I'm really grateful that you were here. Can you please tell people where they can find you, where they can connect with your work um, and any other sort of shout outs to your socials that you want to give? Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Sunny Adcock, um, Sunny underscore Adcock on Instagram. You can see some selfies. You can see mm-hmm. some commentary on stories. But a lot of the time it's it's sharing links to my other work. Um, my blog is still active and that is A Sunny Spot, www.asunnyspot.com.au. I do have a podcast called Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock and it's just having conversations that sort of intersect um, lifestyle and pop culture with politics it's sort of finding the soft in the hard and holding space for those sort of complicated feelings um of coming of age um you can find me on tiktok and twitter as at sunny the writer spelled megan the stallion way so with two e's <laughs> shout out to my girl Iconic. megan um and if you have the chance and you want to consume some you know easy to digest news at the daily odds on instagram and at mecca empower where you sort of see a more gendered take on the news i will put links to all those incredible resources and sunny's work in the show notes thank you you so much for being here this is life chats yay Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats.